We'll be covering how to start a WISP over the next 10 weeks. We'll be going through step-by-step from evaluating a neighborhood all the way through to actually installing a customer. Hello, I'm Dustin. And I'm Eric. Welcome to our very first podcast show, where Eric will speak to you in 10 different languages. Good afternoon. Buenas tardes. Chava. Guten tag. Y gula. Hola. So today we'll be talking about evaluating potential area for coverage. We'll discuss usable locations and evaluating neighborhoods. We also have a special guest with us today, Jeff Jones. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Thanks. for joining us. Good to be here. So will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, I've been with uh, Mimosa Networks for about three and a half years. I'm uh, a network uh, design engineer, and when I'm not designing networks, I'm actually helping out with the product support engineer role. Excellent. Uh, so it sounds like that sometimes you're super busy. Sometimes I'm very busy. But hopefully you're doing something that you love, too. I do. I love love it. Love wireless, for sure. So uh, now we're going to talk to uh, Eric here. Eric, tell hey, us a Justin. little bit about your, your weekend. What would you do? My weekend? Oh, we went, to, we went grocery shopping, my wife and I. And uh, we went to pick up some food for the Chihuahua. I got a little, little dog about this big. And we had to park. We couldn't go to one grocery store. We had to park in the middle, because, and we had to go to Target. Grocery store, Target. Anyway, Target's got the special Rachel Ray dog food, so we had to, we went there to get the Rachel Ray. I know all about that Rachel God. Ray dog food. It looks tempting, too. But it's, yeah. Well, I promised that my weekend was just as boring. I went to the store, did housework, uh, sit on the computer all day. Uh, I you know, do the mimosa social stuff on the weekend, right. so right. Uh, you know, I don't have a whole lot of fun stuff to talk about, so maybe next weekend I'll have something better to talk about. Uh, so now we're moving on to the interrogation room where people send us questions and we answer them here live on the air uh, about the show that we're doing today or the show we did last week. So our first question this week is, will you give us some background information on yourselves? Well, I have been in the wireless business for eight years now. Uh, I ran a WISP for six and a half of those years for a, a company in Arkansas. And so I pretty much learned everything wireless on the job there and well honestly I, I learn new things every day and it wouldn't be a job if you didn't learn something new every day um, you know I, I help people now uh, you know go out and deploy stuff for those guys help them deploy stuff help people troubleshoot but you know that's pretty much all I do wireless is my life now besides my I know wife, that so. I, oh I know that because I, uh, I go out there and help you uh, I've uh, I've been into uh, wireless and radio since I was uh, probably eight or nine, and uh, getting into the uh, IT game a little late, uh, and, and microwave uh, kind of the microwave uh, part of the spectrum a little late. Uh, also, uh, 30 years in ham radio, I'm active, um, and so I'm kind of applying things to uh, upper parts of the spectrum now. We're going up higher in frequency. Jeff, aren't you a ham too? I am been a ham radio, not as radioactive as uh, Eric is, but uh, I am definitely uh, been doing it since the early '90s. So if I get my Geiger counter out, you both are going to spike, right? We're right. probably going to spike, yeah. All right. So moving on to the next question: How much does it cost to start a Wisp? Well, it really depends on what kind of equipment you want to deploy, how many employees you have or need to have, uh, how far away the customers are, your truck rolls. You've got a lot of stuff that you have to consider and a lot of stuff that you have to plan out before you can actually determine how much it's going to cost you to start a WISP. But I can tell you now it's going to cost you a lot of money. So we'll move on to the next question. How do I finance a WISP? 
Well, there's a bunch of different options out there that you can try. Uh, you can see if your town will help you finance it. Uh, if they're desperate for internet service, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to be more than willing to help you buy equipment. Uh, you know, people that you know, your neighbors, you know, if they really want internet service, they might help you uh, with some equipment. Uh, of course, there's always the venture capitalist way where you borrow money from those guys and they invest in your company. You pay them back once you're successful. Uh, you can talk to your bank or, you know, any other kind of lender. They might uh, provide you with some money. But you still have to have a business plan formulated and written down on paper before anybody's going to give you any kind of money whatsoever. If you don't have a plan, I wouldn't suspect you'd see any kind of money. Uh, so we'll move on to the next question. Do I have to know anything about computers or computer networking to start a WISP? Jeff, do you want to answer that? Well, you should have a basic knowledge of, of how computers operate uh, at the network level. I think uh, it, it's really good just to get a, a good understanding. Uh, there's a lot of courses out there that you can take online that can help you with this. Uh, we see a fair amount of customers come in that have basic uh, understanding of uh, computers and how they work, and you know, that, that's always helpful. Well, I know uh, Mimosa has a great help site, too, with uh, tons Absolutely. of documentation on our equipment, but... Uh, some more on that is there are people out there who start businesses that don't know anything about uh, what they're doing. They usually hire good people that do. And if they don't, a lot of those companies end up failing. So you want to make sure that either you know the information or you have somebody that's working with you that knows how to do it. So let's move on here to question five. What kind of legal obligations are there to running a WISP? Uh, well, this is a better question answered uh, on uh, forums like WISP Talk located on Facebook. A lot of those guys are with, you know, WISP runners for many, many years. They've owned and they've sold and owned more WISPs, so they know the ins and outs of the legal world. But, you know, you can hire a, a lawyer or have somebody that knows legal that works for you. But the FCC is one of the major things you need to know about. Uh, if you start breaking uh, rules with Spectrum or start transmitting over EIP levels, uh, you're going to have some, uh, some government guys come down if people report you. Um, so, it, again, it's probably best to ask your questions about legal uh, on uh, the forums where people really are in the know about this kind of stuff. So our last question for today is, is what is the minimum number of subscribers I should have initially? Uh, well, that's a good question. It really depends on your network setup and how many people you have working for you. But if you're thinking of more of just a ROI, return on investment, uh, most people say it's around 10 clients per AP will help you pay for the equipment you've put on the tower and will help you pay for the bandwidth, but it, it depends on uh, how much you charge for bandwidth, how much you're paying for bandwidth, how much your equipment is, your lease payments, uh, your power bill, how much you're paying your, your, your guys or your girls that are working for you. So uh, you have to do your own studies on how much money you're, you're spending and how much you're pulling in to really know what your minimum number of subscribers are going to be. you got the insurance cost. Uh, if you've got to roll a truck out, that's going to, that's going to be a charge. Uh, you might be the only guy, or maybe you're starting it up and, and there's, you're, you're solo. Right. There, there's okay. a bunch of guys out there who are running WISP solo, doing installs, service calls, tech support, uh, tower climbing, and uh, it takes a lot to do that. You save a lot of money, but you're working yourself to death, too. So, you know, it really depends on how you want to run your business. So moving on here, today's main course is evaluating potential area for coverage. So we're going to go over uh, tower locations, rooftops, relay sites, and topography. And then moving into the neighborhood part of it, we're going to talk about density, tree coverage, 
competition and spectrum. So uh, moving on here, we're going to talk about towers. Uh, you can build your own towers. Uh, usually ends up being the better option for you. Uh, partnering with landowners or business owners that, that own the land. Uh, you can provide them free or you know reduced rate service for reduced rate uh, on the land or, or free land. Or uh, there's some people out there who own towers that would be more than willing to let you on their tower to, to get free internet service. A uh, personal experience of mine is we had a farmer that owned a 300-foot tower that he got from a, a bankruptcy, had nothing on it, had no reason to use it, but really desperately needed internet service. We said, hey, we'll come out, we'll give you free service if you let us use the tower. And so after that, we put some Mimosa backhauls up straight to his place, hooked him up with the 10 meg circuit he wanted, used that tower as a relay point for the next town down the road. So you might get lucky enough that you get a free tower out of the deal just from a cheap internet circuit that's not going to cost you more than a, a few bucks. Uh, you can also contract with tower owners. There's a bunch of those guys out there. There's uh, private tower owners. There's American Tower. Uh, there's SBA Towers, which is owned by AT&T. Verizon has towers. There's tons of people out there who own towers that are already built. A lot of those have space, but it depends on how much money you're willing to spend. Comes back, it's always coming back to money here. Uh, depends on the space on the tower, if there's any space, yeah. uh, the location. You know, it just really depends on does it fit your need. And so then we move into rooftops. There, there's tons of people out there who use rooftops in uh, urban and suburban areas. It's a great, great resource and a great uh, replacement for a tower. Uh, it's a lot easier to actually deploy equipment on a rooftop because it's a flat surface and it's a, it's a lot safer to go on a roof than it is to climb a tower. A lot, lot easier uh, access. Yeah, and that's one thing. Yeah, you want to have, uh, if you can get it, 24-hour access. Uh, often when we go out to the field, we have to uh, put in a text a day or two in advance or call somebody, call the uh, landowner, the, the owner, uh, and get access uh, to this uh, spot. Um, also, uh, it's, yeah, it's a lot easier to work on the platform like that, a lot safer uh, as well. It could be quite populated. And then you're going to pay per uh, kind of square foot or, or the number of uh, radios or pieces of equipment that you want to deploy on somebody else's uh, site. So all those are those different things. It's also uh, on, on rooftops and towers, you could find good, uh, often good grounding and, and bonding points you're going to need to protect your uh, investment. I know one thing that we've uh, seen in the past when I worked for a WISP is that we would uh, set up arrangements and agreements with uh, rooftops where we would uh, provide free internet to the owner of the building in lieu of uh, putting our equipment on top. And that works out to be pretty, uh, a pretty sweet deal for everyone, obviously, because you're not there's no money out of your pocket and it you know, provides a, a good relationship for that uh, location. So you're able to work with the landlord or the owner of the property. So consider that when you're looking at rooftop locations. Yeah, as long as you're treating them well and you're, you give them great service and great support, you know, you're, that goes a long way in mm -hmm. uh, any world, especially the wireless world. Mm -hmm. And so moving on here, we're going to talk about remote relay sites. So relay sites would be where you can't see from point A to point B. You need something in the middle to kind of bridge the gap. Uh, there might not be a vertical asset there, so you build your own um, solar sites or just a, a site where you can get, uh, you know, 110 volt uh, power or anything where you can relay between point A and B to get service to, uh, you know, a person or a group of people. Uh, we actually have a solar relay site that we built. Uh, Eric and I spent over a month last year building a site out in uh, 
rural California Highway 1 where we, we put some solar panels up and uh, we actually made what's called the diversity link, which uh, you can see on YouTube. It's actually our first couple of videos there. And yeah, it was a free, uh, we were providing a free internet for uh, a company out on the coast. And uh, we were looking at the topology uh, using the tools and Google Earth, et cetera. And found a couple of good spots up on a hill about 400 feet above the, uh, the, the beach, above the water. And we're able to relay from point A to B to point C. And uh, it turned out real well. Completely off the grid, solar panels, uh, multiple dishes. Uh, and so forth, and uh, remote access, even a uh, security camera on the uh, mast, primary mast itself, uh, and so on, which is we found important uh, as far as security and and also checking on the weather and, and such up in the area. A quick TA tangent alert here is uh, we built this site because we were having some uh, some ducting problems over the bay. Mm -hmm. This this is uh, almost fully over the the bay of Monterey there, so. Uh, ducting occurs when the uh, the hot and cold air you know come in reverse, so it's basically an inversion layer, so it kind of reflects our, our signal around the bay area, and uh, so we have two dishes up using A5C to kind of combat that. How long is that link, by the way? It's uh, 56 miles. Uh, yeah, we'll see some enhancements with uh, with the tropo ducting. And also see some attenuations of some uh, signals arriving out of phase. So, as De Dustin mentioned, uh, we'll, we'll have two. We have uh, dual dishes: a, a 30 dB and a 34 dB at different heights, and uh, both feeds out of each dish uh, arrive for a total of four feeds into the Mimosa A5C radio, and uh, we're able to combat uh, that 56-mile uh, link. Three quarters of it over, uh, mostly over the salt water, and uh, with some special firmware to. Uh, to accommodate the uh, signals in and out. While we're on the TA, uh, Jeff, do you have any experience with uh, links over water? Do you have a lot of guys come and chat with links over water? We do. We get a lot of uh, customers from, uh, well, I would say a fair amount of customers from Southeast Asia where they're trying to make links over uh, multiple island hops. Uh, we've had a fair amount of uh, customers in, um, in, I would say, the Vietnam, um, Cambodia area where they're they're trying to provide an uh, internet link into uh, a remote location. You actually uh, are involved with the the Farallon Islands, right? I was. Yeah, about three years ago, we actually implemented a I'd say about 28 mile link from uh, Sutro Tower uh, location from in San Francisco all the way out to the Farallon Islands, and uh, it was really fun. It was a uh, it was a uh, quite the boat ride. It's about two hour ride out to the islands there. And one of the most memorable part of the trip was getting off the the boat and taking a Zodiac in, in shore. Um, we were only about 6 to 12 inches off the water in the Zodiac. And uh, if anyone knows the Farallon Islands, this is uh, the breeding grounds for great, great white sharks. So uh, I'll tell you, it was uh, quite the uh, ride getting into the shore there. I couldn't get off that boat quick enough. <laughs> I think we're due, almost due to go out there and maybe replace the, some equipment. Yeah. Can you set us up with that? Absolutely. Awesome. Sounds yeah. like fun. Uh, just as long as we don't fall in the water and get eaten by some sharks. Right? <laughs> there you go. So, all right. So moving on here, back on track. Uh, you also want to uh, keep in mind the topography of the area you want to deploy in. Um, you need look at, make sure that you're not looking at a tower or anything that's down in a valley when you're trying to get to, to homes or, or businesses on the other side of a, a hill or you know, a tower that's not surrounded by trees where you don't have any line of sight to where you're trying to get to. 
We yeah, we could see. Uh, you know, we go to the maps, go to Google Earth, go to the uh, uh, the map tool, et cetera, the design tools, and you could you could see so much. You get so much inf information, but it, it really pays. You got to go on site, get a compass out or whatever you need to do, depending on the the link length that you're after, and uh, really look at the uh, topology. There's so many uh, ridges uh, often in some of these uh, places. It's not like uh, kind of flatland. A lot, a lot of places are uh, full of hills and trees and things that might not show up on your design tool, so you really got to go out there. Yeah, those guys in the Midwest are lucky. They don't have really any trees, and they're, they're yeah. flat, but yep. there's a lot of people out in the world that have to deal with hills yeah. and trees and, and mountains and everything else that might be in the way. So uh, moving on here, we're going to talk about evaluating neighborhoods. And the first thing you want to look at is uh, neighborhood density. Uh, what are you trying to do? Do you want to hit a, a big group of homes in a suburban area? Are you trying to rake in money? Are you trying to provide Internet service to a rural community that's, you know, really spread out? So you need to plan out, uh, you know, are you going to do a mini pop in a small neighborhood? Or are you going to do a gigapop on a tower? Uh, so it's just really, you know, planning your network. Planning is basically, you know, number one step for uh, doing your network. And then you need to consider trees. Trees are a huge attenuator, especially for 5 gigahertz, which is uh, most of our equipment, although we go higher in the spectrum. But the higher you go, the, the worse the attenuation is going to be. So you need to check and see, you know, if you've got a lot of trees or, or no trees at all and uh, plan your network around that as well. Again, many pops and gigapops can come into effect here, depending on uh, what kind of tree coverage you're looking at. Say you've got one home visible from a tower, you can always backhaul there and then hit all the other homes around that one home if you're in a, a dense neighborhood. Whereas if you're not, you're, you're out in a rural area, it's going to be a lot harder for you to, to do many pops or even gigapops if you've got a bunch of trees in the way. So you know, you're at you're at uh, you know you're up at, at 900 meg and then you move it into four, etc. And you can you can push the signal through through a certain amount of foliage and, and, and such. Uh, and, and as soon as you start going uh, higher up in the spectrum, then we, we see th these issues that come up more. Uh, there's a certain amount of obstructions, Fresnel obstructions, uh, and and so on. And uh, then we want to keep error rates in five push the data through uh, and, and there's more of a challenge as you go up in the spectrum. Since you min mentioned Fresnel, do you want to explain what that is real quick? Well, either one of you? you, want, you want to get... <laughs> oh, well, so, so Fresnel, so Fresnel <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the microwave uh, part of the spectrum, so Fresnel uh, between point A, link A and B or between a, a link, between both sides of a link, uh, so let's say let's take uh, uh, 10 gig or let's take five gig at like 10 miles. Uh, you want line of, you need line of sight there, and pretty much the RF envelope or the signal from uh, this side and one side, the other side of the link. It's kind of like a torpedo shape or like a cigar shaped uh, uh, signal or, or envelope the pattern. So uh, uh, we w we don't want that obstructed by uh, sub, uh, trees, foliage, uh, a, a ridge, uh, maybe some kind of part of a saddle, a little mountain, part of a mountain. And you can have a certain percentage before we, we start seeing big error rates and other things that affect the, the, quality, the quality of the signal. And there's there's tons of tools out there. We have our own Mimosa design tool that, that calculates Fresnel Zone. Yeah. Uh, there's apps for phones, iPhone, Android, uh, online tools other than the design tool that will help you calculate Fresnel Zone and uh, line of sight. Uh, again, it's not 100% perfect. It's always yeah. best to actually go out and uh, 
visit the site, you know, climb up the tower and see exactly yeah. what you can see on I, either side or w- whatever your vertical asset might be. It's always good to climb up it and, and see what you can really see from uh, each point. I use uh, use one RF RF toolbox, and it allows you to put five, enter in the, the frequency, you know, 5,600 meg or, or 10.368 uh, gig, whatever you're at, and the distance, and it gives you the radius, the, the overall radius, and then the amount of uh, up to what you want to keep uh, 60% or better of that, right. uh, of the fat part of that uh, zone uh, in there. Uh, so it kind of gives you that. So if you just enter some data, and it gives you a rough idea of what you're looking at. You always aim for 100%, but if you yeah. can't get it, you know, 60 is a minimum uh, for nail zone that you need to, to get a good link. So uh, one thing I was going to add, too, is uh, when you are checking for obstructions with tree coverage, I know this sounds kind of silly, but it's true. Not only do you want to check uh, in the wintertime, but you also want to check in the summertime because of the trees uh, having leaves on them. Uh, I've seen where customers put up links in the wintertime or even autumn, and everything looks good, and then springtime comes around, and all of a sudden their link stops uh, working. So, you know, can take in consideration that the foliage is going to change, and and this is uh, something you need to check both both times of the year. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, we look at that. <laughs> Definitely have experienced this firsthand yeah. when I was a— uh, uh, you know, a newbie at wireless installation, you know, we'd put up links that worked fine in the, the wintertime and come springtime when the leaves started blooming, we're like, well, why is the signal dropping? September, right. October, November, this, this is great. <laughs> hey, you'll work during the wintertime, but you won't work during the summertime. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, right. definitely a uh, good rule of thumb is, you know, if you wouldn't install it in the summertime, you don't want to do it in the wintertime either. Right. So you don't want a half a year customer. You want a 365-day-a-year yeah. customer. Yep. Uh, moving on here, you also want to uh, study your competition. Uh, most WISPs out there, they try to serve the unserved or underserved folks out there in uh, rural areas or maybe even suburban areas that don't have uh, fast providers because they haven't come in and updated their infrastructure. There are some out there who actually do compete with the the cable and fiber providers, and they do very well. But again, at the same time, it's because of the quality of service they provide, uh, the quickness of deployment, because it takes a lot longer for a cable line provider to you know deploy a service to somebody than it does wireless. Wireless you can do in a day, whereas a wireline it takes you know weeks or months sometimes to get service to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, a good thing is that you guys are local support. You know, people know who you are. You know your neighbors. You're not just some faceless entity like AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, or any of the big names out there. So people really like being able to know uh, the the person that's actually providing them service. And, you know, those guys communicate with each other all the time. Whereas you sit on, you know, a wait waiting line, you know, for an hour or two yeah. trying to, to get somebody on the phone. And even then, sometimes you're not going to get somebody on the phone. So uh, leverage that. Leverage the uh, the local people that know you. There's build tons some, tons of people out there who do that and are successful at this. Yeah, build some uh, rapport. We we have a couple of test networks and and the uh, these test clients uh, text us on the weekends or text me text text Dustin on the weekends and uh, and we get back to we respond back. We have the team ready to go at Mimosa. Uh, for help, so we know where our reference, uh, where our, uh, our references are, and we can we can uh, reach out and get some help from our, our whole team, and um, and then we keep uh, we keep in touch with these these folks too. So we we always have that report, and, and they're happy to uh, to really get a response back. You know, on yeah, time. They, they love the uh, yeah. the extremely fast response time because yeah. they have our phone numbers, and then we're out there the next day if there's even you know a problem. But 
luckily for us, the our Mimosa uh, test network stay up. It's mainly, you know, internal networking issues on their side or their kid can't get their iPod or, you know, iPad connected to the network kind of deal. And, you know, it's basically, you know, basic, you know, tech help that, you know, tech support would do. Uh, also, uh, another good thing is local tech support and not outsourcing your, your tech to some mm. call center on the other right. side of the world. People, uh, you know, they want local help. They want to talk to local people, you know, people who speak, uh, you know, like they do. They, they feel real comfortable with people who, who talk the same way that they do. And, you know, coming from Arkansas, you know, lots of people talk, you know, with a southern accent. And you have the same accent, you know, everybody gets along with you. But mm-hmm. they complain when even somebody from New York gets on the phone. <laughs> They're like, we can't understand this person. So so yeah. local help, local support, local installers, you know, people who know other people in the area. That's the only way to go. Sure. Uh, and then the uh, the last thing here is uh, study the spectrum in the area. Uh, 5 gigahertz, uh, 900 megahertz, 2.4. You know, a lot of the spectrum is uh, unlicensed, open. You know, everybody can use it. And so if you're anywhere, uh, you know, suburban, urban, for sure, you're going to run into a ton of interference. And even if you're in rural areas, sometimes you'll run into a lot of interference. Mm -hmm. So before you decide to deploy in an area, you need to make sure that you look at the spectrum to see exactly how much is usable or uh, how to plan your network. Again, we come back to the planning. Because for, say, if uh, the noise floor is neg 70 in your neighborhood or the area you're trying to deploy, uh, you want to try to keep your subs at like neg 50 or or better because the the lower the signal to noise ratio is the SNR the worse connection that your customers are going to have and the worse experience you're going to have and they're going to move back to a wireline provider or somebody who has a uh, you know more spectrum or just a better connection in general so uh, again it's always good to, to go out and survey the area and plan your network you have to plan it before you try to deploy it or you're, you're just setting yourself up to fail and waste everybody's time and money. And then you're going to give yourself a bad name, and once you do figure out what you're trying to do, then it's too late by that point. Yeah, I would actually recommend if you are to do a spectrum analysis, <clears throat> you know, having a handheld uh, service monitor or a spectrum analyzer device, you know, can be very expensive, up to, you know, ten. $15,000. What works really well is uh, using one of our, uh, like a B5 Lite or C5, and going into uh, that radio's configuration uh, while you're at the customer site or the potential candidate site and doing a sampling of what the frequencies look like at that given location. Now, mind you, the frequencies are going to change because this is an unlicensed spectrum. So, what you see today may not be the same spectrum tomorrow. So, you know, keep that in consideration. But essentially what you want to do is look for those those spikes that you have on that graph and try to mitigate those spikes by looking for uh, open channels. So that's really important to get that information before you actually deploy more in the planning phase. Yeah, we get a, we'll put a, we'll go out to a, a site or go a roof to a rooftop and uh, it will, we'll, we'll, gra- we'll put a radio on a uh, tripod. And then for power, so, you know, if you don't have a 100-foot extension cord or 50-foot extension cord, uh, we, we'll use a, a, a big, you know, kind of a car battery, uh, the portable emergency power thing, you know, 12-volt battery on it with a handle and an inverter. And then we'll feed the uh, POE off of that and connect that to, uh, 
connect that to the 5 gig radio and scan the spectrum. So we're completely portable. Maybe a little uh, little speaker stand or some kind of little tripod adjustable on the roof, and, and you're completely uh, mobile at that point as well. So. And there's been uh, guys recently, you know, building little portable batteries out of, like, DeWalt batteries or, you know, things like that where they can carry it around. It's safe. You know, it's real it's light. Safe, yeah, but they can plug a POE into it. It'll power the radio for however long they need to just yeah. to do a site survey or to, you know, look at the area and see what's going on. But, you know, people are innovating and, and making, you know, smaller devices and gadgets every day to make life easier on people. So... And I think that actually, like, DeWalt and Makita are actually selling things like this now because people mm-hmm. are modifying their stuff to do this. Yeah, you've got to play that, that business safely, yeah. All right, so now we're going to move on to tech tips. And uh, today our, our friend Jeff here is going to give us a, a tip on uh, what to do or what not to do. Well, since today is the second day of spring, I think it'd probably be appropriate to talk about weatherproofing. Um, our tech tip today is obviously around uh, weatherproofing the end connector on the B5C radio. Well, we have seen a fair amount of support cases come in where radios will exhibit uh, strange behaviors. Uh, one, uh, one, one that comes to mind is uh, chains one and three or two and four being uh, out of balance with the other chains. And what happens is is uh, the actual um, RF uh, coax uh, gets ingress of water in it and causes, uh, causes us to uh, you know, change the dynamics of the cabling. So one of the quick and easy ways to resolve that, well, obviously you have to replace it if that's the case, but one way to um, have that situation not happen is to do a really good job at weatherproofing. And I'm sure Eric can talk a little bit more as far as uh, how that looks, but we uh, we see a fair amount of um, issues around water waterproofing. So, you know, again, this being the second day of spring and we're not out of the woods when it comes to rain uh, rainy weather, uh, don't cut any corners when it comes to uh, weatherproofing your product there because we really want to make sure that it doesn't fail in a storm. It's not a good good time to go out and replace radios anyway. So, Well, I definitely have a first-hand experience on uh, badly wrapped LMR cables and uh, water getting oh. in the connectors after storms. So mm-hmm. I definitely want to make sure that you, you seal it up. Uh, you know, we, we've got our special vulcanized tape that comes in our, our kits or, you know, there's mastic yeah. tape you can get at uh, satellite um, stores or, you know, at Home Depot if you really have to. Uh, a lot of people do, uh, you know, electrical tape first and then mastic or mastic mm-hmm. then electrical tape, then mastic again. There's a lot of different ways out there, and, but you just need to make sure it's it's tight and it's sealed and there's no way that moisture can get into that connector if you you know if you're bringing a drip loop from your lmr 400 uh or you're bringing it in and and it's you know it's coming back into the radio and there's grab you know you get rain and and rain's going to fall and if rain collects underneath one of your your products uh it's it it's very important the way you wrap your mastic or your self-vulcanizing uh, tape or your coax seal. If you do it the wrong way, if you know you roll it, you wrap it up, if you do it the incorrect way, water collects and will, will go, will can seep and ingress in, into that uh, 
a tape joint at that point. So you got to make it so you got to think so that uh, no matter what's it's being hit with sideways snow, rain, whatever's fo- coming down on that seal point, that it falls with with gravity, say fall, rolls off. So uh, instead of go, some of that stuff will be captured and goes in. So we don't want to do that. We want to keep it uh, keep it the right way. So if you've got like a B5C, yeah. you want to wrap from the bottom up toward the, the bottom of the radio. That way, the the overlap is where water won't catch on it. The It'll overlap. just roll down. Yeah. Uh, if you wrap it the opposite direction, then you've got overlaps every section yeah. and more chance of uh, moisture yeah. to get into the connector. So you just have to look at the direction of it. Uh, we actually have uh, some pictures on our uh, help site uh, on how to do this. And I'm sure there's tons of YouTube videos out there that you know yep. detail this even more in depth than what we have to help you wrap your connector so you don't have to worry about going out and replacing those every storm. And trip loops and, and et cetera. All right, so uh, wrapping up here, uh, we talked about evaluating an area. So we talked about towers and rooftops, relay sites, and we talked about topography. Then in neighborhoods, we talked about density, uh, tree coverage, spectrum, and competition. Uh, So the takeaways from this is you need to plan your network. You need to go out and actually visit the sites before you do anything. Uh, You also need to find a, a source of money because you can't do a whole lot without that. So you have to have a business plan uh, prepped and ready to go before you start looking for anybody that is willing to let you have or borrow money to build your network. So you have to spend a lot of time thinking about what you want to do before you actually try to go out and start putting something together. Uh, So next week, we're going to be talking about finding a backbone provider. Uh, So we'll see you next time on our next Dustin and Eric podcast show. Thanks, Jeff, for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. Please hit the subscribe or follow button to stay up to date with our latest podcast, which will be available on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. 